you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. (laughs) This is often referred to as the love chapter, uh, which is an appropriate uh, phrase for it, I suppose. But we often think of this chapter in terms of weddings. It's read very often in weddings, and it, it certainly is very applicable there. But one of the first things I want us to see from this passage is Paul is writing to a local church. He's writing, writing to a body of believers, much like us. And so the immediate context of this t- discussion of love is the local church. So with that in mind, let me read for us the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It's not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. For I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that you have unwavering, unshaking love for us. We change our minds, our emotions all the time, but you don't change. But Lord, we love one another. It is inconsistently, it is imperfectly, Lord, but this is the way you tell us to love. And would you teach us to do that? And the reason that we would love is because of just how much you have loved us through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. There's a pastor one time that told a story of a child psychologist child psychologist was at home. He was building an extension on his driveway. He had dug the, dug the dirt out that needed to be dug, put the structure in place, poured the concrete, smoothed the concrete out. Everything was just about perfect. He turns around to take care of his tools, and at that moment his kids lose control of a ball. It goes onto the concrete, and the little steps go out onto the wet concrete, sinking deep into it. The man, the father, turns around and begins speaking very harshly to his kids. How could you do this? You've messed up everything. Speaking very harshly to his young ones. His wife steps out the front door and begins rebuking the husband. Honey, why are you saying, why are you being so harsh to the kids? You're a child psychologist. You're supposed to love children. And he retorts to his wife, it's easy to love kids in the abstract, but it's very difficult to love them in the concrete. Obviously, the pastor loved the play on words there, but he thought that 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 story really got to the heart of the matter of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know, love as a theory makes total sense to us. 
I need to be self-sacrificial. I need to give of myself. Even the thought of someone loving me that way, they know all my faults. They know my shortcomings. We like that idea. But when it's actually played out in life, when I have to literally love somebody that way, we don't want to do that. We're not so sure that's the right way to handle things. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is teaching us how to tangibly love somebody, what to do to love them. Our word for love today in, in, in our culture, it's become so expansive that it's really lost its meaning altogether. We just talk about love as a feeling that we have towards someone or something, some butterflies we get in our stomach. Or, or maybe we just think about it sexually, if, uh, sensual or erotic love is what we think of when we talk about the word love. Paul is equating it, or it's congruent with things that you do for another person. You do for them, says Paul. It's an action. And it's not them out there that he's talking to about how to love people better. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to us. He's talking to a local church. I'm going to remind you of that often throughout this sermon, because I think we need to remember it's not the bad people out there that aren't loving one another well. He's saying it's us, brothers and sisters in Christ, you're not loving each other well. That's what he's trying to tell us here. This is somewhat of a rejoinder that Paul is giving to the local church there at Corinth. They're not doing these things. They're exalting the wrong things, if you will. The chapter 13 comes, it's kind of a sandwich in this lengthy explanation to discussion that Paul is having on spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, he lists some gifts. He talks about why they're important for the local church. And then in chapter 14, he stresses that these gifts be done decently and in order. Using the spiritual gifts, it's supposed to edify and be of benefit to the church. That's what chapter 14 is about. So right smack in the middle is a parenthesis of sorts. It's, it's still in the same line of thinking as spiritual gifts, but Paul is saying as he ends chapter 12, I'm here to show you a more excellent way. These spiritual gifts are, are important, says Paul, but there's a more excellent way, and it's the way of love. This is how you ought to treat your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's how you express that love. How are you saying it? It's not just, a, it's not just important what you say to people. It's, I would argue, more important how you say that to people. Paul David Tripp, in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, says, We prefer to lob grenades of truth into people's lives rather than lay down our lives for them. But that's exactly what Christ did for us. Can we expect to be called to do anything less? We know something that's right, so we take the grenade of truth, we throw it in someone's heart, it explodes. They can't hear it because of the unloving way in which you have said it. It's got to be done in the right way. So if love is the greatest of the Christian virtues, then how am I expected to show that to people? How am I letting the love of Christ dwell in me? Well, we do it because Christ loves us perfectly. And he's going to allow us to love much deeper and much better than we ever imagined that we could. So I want to look at this passage in three ways. The first, the first three verses, is how we express love. The manner in which we do it. We'll, we'll define what love means in the second point, but how is it expressed? Love, says Paul, as I mentioned at the end of chapter 12, it's the more excellent way. Put simply, it doesn't really matter what you do. If it's not done in love... It's not of benefit to the local church. Love is the rule for our actions. The Corinthians thought that they had a triad of virtues, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge, and they exalted these things above everything else. It's like the really good Christians had these spiritual gifts. They were kind of the, the, uh, 
the celebrities of the church. If you could do these things, then you really arrived as a Christian. And Paul's saying, I'm not saying these are of no value, but they don't have any value if they're not done in love. Many commentators believe that Paul is using hyperbole here, that it's intentional exaggeration to drive home his point. I don't think Paul's exaggerating at all. He's saying very plainly that your gifts, your ability to teach, your ability to to serve one another, to have mercy and hospitality, to do programs, to do anything around the church, if it's not done in love, then God does not find value in it. If it's not serving someone, if it's not for another person, but it's really selfish, God says, I don't find value in that. J.C. Ryle says that truth without love equals harshness, and love without truth is compromise. Tim Keller expands on that definition when he says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without, heart, without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. When our gifts are exercised in love and not competition or selfishness, people are edified. But when there's an absence of love, people are often hurt and offended. Paul says if we do these things without love and care and concern, then we're nothing better than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's what he says there in the first few verses. We're just noise. You can, have, you can be affirmed by other people. You can be applauded for the great gifts that you have. But in God's mind, you're just a bunch of, you're just a bunch of instruments banging about. It's not making anything, any noise that's edifying someone. Listen to what David Pryor says in his commentary on this passage. This is very good. If lovelessness actively repels people from the church and the gospel, thus being the single biggest obstacle to effective witness in a community or nation. Okay, he says, number one, lovelessness is the biggest obstacle to people coming to the church. Secondly, it also evacuates the Christian of his significance before God. That's pretty significant, isn't it? It's saying it repels people from the church and it evacuates the Christian from his significance. Lovelessness does. God cannot use the loveless Christian for his glory, even if he's gifted with prophetic speaking, even if he's able to understand and explain the deep things of God, even if he's knowledgeable about a vast field of truth and experience, and even if he has the most incisive and bold measure of faith. Lovelessness hurts our witness to the outside world and it doesn't glorify God. We may have all these wonderful gifts, but if it's not flowing out of love, it's not of benefit. It does not help. The Corinthians thought that they possessed the great triad of virtues. Paul says it's not so. I have a more excellent way to show you, and that's the way of love. This chapter is really meant to put a mirror right up in front of us. How are you loving people? How do you love your spouse? Yes. How do you love your family? How do you love that person in the church that you really disagree with about something? How are you loving each other here? Okay? Don't don't take your cues from the outside world. What What does culture tell us about someone, how you disagree with them? It says get as angry as you can, use as much vitriolic language as you can. Okay? Debate with them on social media so you don't have to do it face-to-face and really know somebody and, and hear what their argument says. People in our culture today wear of being offended and being upset almost like a badge of honor. We can't do that. That's not how we're supposed to love. Are you using your gifts so that other people 
will just tell you how great you are and how gifted you are? Are you using them for them to edify and build them up? Are you using them to show others the beauty of Christ or just so that you will see your actions and you'll receive a claim and a reward? Are we as a church known for telling and showing the truth to other people in love? How about you as an individual? Because this is the, most ex- the more excellent way. But this all sounds great, but what does it mean? What, is, what does love really mean? I said, I said at, the, at the beginning, I feel like our term for love has become so expansive that we've really it's zapped it from its meaning. So number two, love explained. I want us to spend most of our time on this point, the, the middle part of this passage. What does it mean to love someone in the context of our relationship with those in the church? We've got to define our terms, first of all. You know, we, we, we declare our love for our spouse or our family or some friends, and then five minutes later we declare our undying love for chocolate chip cookies. It, we can't, at least I hope, right, we don't mean the same thing, right? We, there's, there's some, we use the same word, but it's, we're talking about something different. So Paul gives us a definition, a long definition spanning verses 4 through 8. Let's step through each phrase and unpack what Paul is trying to teach us. Love is patient and kind. To really love someone, Paul says it means you're patient with them. You don't snap at them. You don't immediately get irritated with everything that they do or say. The Greek verb translated as patient here actually means forbearing in respect to actual offenses and injuries received from another. In other words, it assumes that someone's wronged you. It assumes that they've hurt or offended you in some way, and your response to them ought to be patient. It doesn't mean that you don't tell them that you've been hurt or offended or that, you, that you, uh, your emotions are of no value. It's saying you're patient with them. You forbear with them. It demonstrates a willingness to take someone's unpleasant character traits and stride, and you exhibit patience towards them. Next, love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. The unloving person is always envying another person's life or boasting about what they have. How unloving to constantly be envying or coveting what someone else has. Think about it in the context of marriage. You may be sitting in the church pew one Sunday, and you look up a few rows ahead of you, and you think to yourself, man, that couple just has it all. They always seem to be happy. They have so much money. They have a great house. Their kids are so well-dressed, and they're so well-behaved. That... that that wife, she always treats her husband well. How, how great that must be. And you begin to envy and covet what someone else has. But you really don't know anything about their relationship. You might know 5%, just what you see on Sunday. You know very little what happens, but you're drawing conclusions based on the very small amount that you actually see. So you begin to resent your, your spouse. You begin to resent the people that you see, that you believe that they have it all figured out. To envy someone is not loving those people, nor is it loving the person that you're in a relationship with. Paul also says, stop boasting. Stop boasting in what you have. After all, it is a gift from God. Stop. You're making other people envious of you when you're boasting and jealous. A person that boasts, they do these things, are marked by a big ego, pride, and a condescending attitude. In the absence of love, our gifts and accomplishments we begin to declare them as other, to others, but really we only come across as obnoxious. Envy, arrogance, boasting, they do not equal love. You're not loving another when you do these things. 
Next, it does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. The literal translation here, love does not seek its own things. It's not just seeking its own pleasure, seeking its own betterment, seeking to get itself forward. Okay? It's, it doesn't always insist on its own way. Y'all know those people in your life, maybe it's you. You're in an argument, and you're far more interested in winning the argument than actually being right. You insist on your own way. Always irritated at the decisions of others. You're prone to seek your own advantage over another person's because you have no love and care and concern for them. Are you always insisting on your own way? Are you always irritated with people? No one in the church, I would say probably no one on planet Earth for that matter, has never been irritated with someone. We do. We get irritated at people sometimes. Their personality irritates you. Their comments irritate you. What do you do with that? It's not talking about never being upset with someone, but how do you take that irritation? Do you then, oh, I don't want to hear anything that they have to say, and you write them off, and from now on, all the decisions that they could possibly make are now wrong? Resentful, that, that uh, our translation, the ESV uses, can also be translated as it keeps no record of wrongs. Some of your translations may use that. This is a tough one for us. I hope that none of you keep a notebook somewhere in your house and you're writing down all the records of wrongs that your spouse commits or perhaps a friend commits. I bet you don't have a notebook, but you do have a file in your mind, and you bring those things out at the opportune time. Don't you remember? Someone upset you, but don't you remember when you did this and you did that and you did that and that upset me and that hurt me? That's the record of wrongs that Paul's talking about. Love doesn't do that. It's not that love forgets. I don't buy into this idea that you can forgive and truly forget something that someone has done to you. Love knows what somebody did and said, I'm not going to keep bringing this up. I've forgiven you. We're past that. I love you, and I'm going to bear that. Love seeks what is best for people, not just what's best for the self. Love concerned with others. Next, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. We may see evil and wrongdoing go on in the world, and we recognize it at that. There's nothing wrong with that. But we rejoice in what is true. We don't rejoice in what is evil. That may seem obvious, but how often do you secretly rejoice at the failures of other people? You would never admit that sitting here in the church today, but how often have you secretly been happy when misfortune befalls someone else? And I'm not talking about the fact that their football team loses on Saturday. I'm talking about something significant. You secretly are kind of happy when something bad happens to someone. Why can't we just, when something great happens to somebody, we're really excited for them? That's what love does. Love mourns with those who mourn and rejoices with those who rejoice. A lot more could be said about that, but let me move on to the, what I think is the crucial point, and really the key to unlocking this passage here. The King James Version, perhaps some of you are reading from that this morning, it translates the word love as charity. It, I think that really unlocks it. It takes this word love, okay, I have no idea what that means, because we apply it in so many different ways, and charity takes it down to something concrete, something that I can define and understand better. We have far big, too big of a view of love. Charity is the more accurate term here. Charity says of another person, I'm going to think well of you, and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I may not want to, but that's what I'm going to do as a charitable person, someone who's been called to love you as the Bible calls me to love. 
Here's what R.C. Sproul says about charity. It's from his Table Talk magazine. This is kind of a long uh, quote. I'll tell you that up front, but it's really, really good, so please bear with me. The judgment of charity works something like this, says R.C. Sproul. When we disagree with another person, I believe that we're called as Christians to assume the motives of the person with whom we disagree are pure motives. Let me remind you, we're talking about the context of our brothers and sisters in Christ here, okay? R.C. Sproul says, you assume the best of another person. This is the approach we're to have with those with whom we have an honest difference in biblical interpretation, but who love the Bible and aren't trying to change what it teaches. Such people are unwilling to compromise the essential, essential truths of the Christian faith, which is great. Now, the judgment of charity assumes in a Christian dispute that the brother or sister with whom we're disagreeing is disagreeing honestly and with personal integrity. That's what you're to assume. Here I think of my friend John MacArthur. If I disagree about something with John, I don't care what it is, and we go to the mat and talk about it, John will change his position, no matter the cost, if I can persuade him that the Bible teaches my view and not his. That's because what he wants more than anything else is to be faithful to the Word of God. That's what I mean by the judgment of charity. We don't impugn people's motives, and we don't assume the worst of them when we disagree with them. We make a distinction between best-case and worst-case analysis. The problem we have as sinners on this side of glory is that we tend to reserve the best-case analysis for our own motives and the worst-case analysis for our brothers' or sisters' motives. Don't we do that? You was, I, I had a pure heart in this, but you didn't have a pure, pure heart in this, clearly. That's what we assume, and, and the judgment of charity says, no, we assume the best of both. That's just the opposite of the spirit we're called to have in terms of biblical humility when we impugn the worst case to our brother or sister. I think charity, again, is the key to this passage. It, cha- it takes this abstract call to love and makes it concrete. It makes it understandable in my brain. I give you the benefit of the doubt. I don't assume the worst of you. I assume the best. That's be- we're trying to build a loving community here, one that Paul tells us to, but also that the, the world looking in says, man, that's, that's odd. <laughs> That's different and unique. I want to be a part of a place that they know they will know we are Christians by our love, by the love that we have for one another. Are we loving each other uniquely, or are we just just look like everybody else? We get angry and upset and write people off just like everybody else does. Charity says, you are my brother or sister in Christ. I know that what you're trying to do is for the best for this church, for this class, for our kids, for this ministry. And while I disagree with how you have the decision you've made, I love you, and I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. But how seldom we do this, especially to people in authority over us, our bosses, our teachers, our parents, even our pastors. We hear a bad report about someone, and we instantly believe it. Someone is guilty until proven innocent. We assume the guilt. We assume the worst. We're always suspicious. When someone offends us or disappoints us or hurts us, we now assume the worst of them going forward. Paul says, stop. Give charity to each other. We consider about giving someone the benefit of the doubt, but, but Andy, what if they burn me again? You fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. It's the mantra that we have adopted. Are you probably going to get burned again by somebody if you give them the benefit of the doubt and trust them again? You probably will. Chances are very likely that you will. But why don't we let grace and charity be what 
signifies us, be the trait that we give, be what we dole out to people rather than suspicion and anger and hurt. First Pres, let's extend charity to one another. Let's be loving. Charity is patient instead of irritable and impatient. Charity is kind instead of crass and rude. Charity is humble instead of arrogant and proud. Charity respects others' opinions instead of insisting on its own way. Charity bears the sins of others instead of looking down on them for their faults. Charity acknowledges the sin in oneself and has grace for the sinners. What would it do to our marriages? What would it do to our friendship? What would it do to our public discourse, our discussion on social issues, if we would just show a little bit more charity to one another? What do you think it would do? Yes, that means you may not always be proven as right in your argumentation. It may, not, it may mean that you're not always vindicated in your point of view. But what are you trying to accomplish? Loving someone, serving them, or just, hey, he was right. <laughs> what is it? Read the love that's taught and commanded in this chapter, and it does seem a bit overwhelming. Bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Can I really love this way? This seems to be, this command seems to be too high and too great. Well, you would be right. You can't love like this, because this is the love of Christ. Lastly, this is love everlasting. We quickly, quickly realize that we're unable to love like this. This phrase in verse 7, as Paul summarizes at the beginning of verse 8, that love never fails or love never ends. It should remove any inclination that we can perfectly reproduce this type of love. Now, here's, first of all, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying since you can't love this perfectly, then you shouldn't try altogether. That's not the takeaway here. You can love far deeper and far better and in a more serving way than you ever thought possible. But this is a description of the love of Christ for us. The Corinthian church was majoring and emphasizing the wrong triad of virtues. Paul's not saying they're of no value, but they're of less value than the more excellent way. He's not saying that prophecy, tongues, and knowledge have no value, but faith, hope, and love are the more excellent way. Love is endless. It will never lose its validity and power. Prophecies, they're going to pass away. Because one day we won't have any need of them. Now the foretelling in the Old Testament of Christ will come and do this and that, of course, that has passed away. But there's also an angle of prophecy that's foretelling, which is what preachers do. So one day, there'll be no need of preachers. I don't know how that, how that makes you feel, but um, you won't have a need of a preacher anymore. Prophecies will pass away. Next, tongues will cease. Much more could be said about tongues. I believe that the tongue served a temporal function for the establishment and building up of the church. No matter what, what your view of the speaking in tongues is, one day they will cease. They will no longer have a function in the church. Knowledge will pass away. We'll have no need to gain more and more knowledge of God. God will be before us. We'll know everything that we need to know about him because we'll see him face to face. We know in part and we prophesy in part. Everything we have right now is just in part. My knowledge, my understanding, my love, it's, just, it's a partial manifestation. But one day the perfect, the perfect will come. Christ will come again. We will be known fully just as we're fully known. And we will see him. We'll know all that we need to know. It won't be in part anymore. It will be in full. Verses 11 and 12 are just further illustrations of the things that are going to change once Christ returns. 
The understanding and reasoning that I have right now, in contrast, is just like a little child. We just reason like little children now. But one day, we'll reason like big boys, big adults, right? It'll be so much different, the reasoning and understanding that we have. The city of Corinth was known for its mirrors. So looking into a mirror was well known to its citizens. But a mirror for them was just a polished piece of metal. You can imagine as they looked into this, they didn't see a reflection like you and I saw in this, mor- this morning in a mirror as we were getting ready to come to church. It's the same thing. Right now we just see into a polished piece of metal, but one day we will understand perfectly. So Paul closes the chapter by saying, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the most important virtue of the most excellent way. Faith and hope still belong to this present age. Faith will no longer be necessary one day because the one that we've had faith in will be standing in front of us. We won't have a need for faith, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Hope, when Christ returns, hope will no longer be necessary. The one we've hoped would come again is there, ready to take us to the place that we've so longed to be. But love will remain. It will remain personified in Jesus Christ. The deep, intimate, steadfast love of God will remain. So what about you? How do you love other people? Do you love them selfishly, for selfish gain? Does the fact that God has loved you unconditionally change the way that you then see how you ought to love others? Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College for many years, which is now Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. And he was married to his wife, Muriel, for 53 years. In the, late, in the mid-1980s, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Her health deteriorated rapidly, and by the late 80s, she couldn't speak, she couldn't clothe herself, and even feed herself. Leading up to her inability to do much of anything, Robertson McQuilkin noticed some very odd things about his wife. As he would put her in bed at night, she noticed that her feet were bloody, and he, but he couldn't understand why. Till one day, a faculty member came into his room and said, We found your wife walking around the campus. She was in her nightgown. She was walking around barefoot. They lived very close to the campus, thus her bloody feet. What they found out later was she was looking for him. She often would stand outside his room where he was teaching. She just wanted to hear his voice. From that point forward, they had in-home health care. But the in-home health care would tell doc- Dr. McQuilkin, when you're here, she's great. She, she does what we want. She, she listens to us. But every time you leave, she becomes obstinate and won't do much of anything. So this world-renowned theologian, author, and scholar resigned his position of president of Columbia Bible College in 1990. You can hear the audio version of his resignation speech online. I strongly recommend it to you. Have a box of Kleenex with you. He resigned his position so that he could stay home and take care of his wife. And he said in his address to the school that it was one of the easiest decisions that he had ever made. He said, Muriel has taken care of me for 40 years, and if I must take care of her for 40 more, it would not be enough. He would stay home and take care of her for 13 years until her death in 2003. The board at the school offered to increase his salary. They offered to pay for full in-home health care, but he said no. He said, I didn't make a vow to the school, but I most certainly did make a vow to my wife. He said, she's such a delight to me. I don't have to stay home with my wife. I get to stay home with my wife. He said, people sense this to be a tragedy and somehow were helped by what they perceived to be a choice that I consider to be my only option. However, it's all more than keeping promises and being fair. 
As I watch her brave descent into oblivion, Muriel is the joy of my life. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind of person she is, the wife I've always loved, and I also see fresh manifestations of God's love, the God I long to love more fully. Why was Dr. McQuilkin so ready to love his wife in this way? Was it because of the vows and promises that she had made, that they had made to one another on their wedding day? Of course, that was it in part. But what impacted him the most was the way that she had loved him for the previous 40 years. He said, there's no price too big that I would stay home and, and love her in the same way that she's loved me. He was ready to love her because how she, because the way that she had loved him. We love God and therefore others because of the love that he has showered upon us. That, yeah, that's the answer to the why question. Why and how am I going to love people the way that this passage calls me to love people? I don't think I have it in me. People irritate me too much. I get too frustrated. How could I possibly love and be charitable the way this passage acts? Ask me to. Just think of the love that was showered upon you in Jesus Christ. That unlocks the passage for us. It says, this is how you love. This is the reason that you love. Romans 5, verse 8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Had it been up to us, we would have looked down and said, nope, you made your bed. You've got to lay in it now. God says, no, I love you. I find worth, I find value in you. I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins when you don't care about me a lick. So we think about that and consider it, and that's how you're able to love your brother and sister in Christ. That's why you do it. That's the motivation. That's the command. We love God because he first loved us. We love one another because we were first loved by him. It's all about love, and it's because he first loved us. Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these, the more excellent way, is love. Will you love him and will you love others? Just look at how he has loved you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your love, your steadfast and unfailing love for us. Because of that, would you give us the strength to love other people? And it would all be for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction? Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.